when you train a reinforcement learning algorithm from scratch, you know, it just it has no respect for like the the delicacy of the hardware. If, if, <laughs> you know, it's it's like it would just like push all the the, the motors in the maximum speed in the different directions, and you know, we we would bring in these um, this the manufacturer of this shadow hand and show them what we were doing, and they would they would just watch in horror, like like <laughs> you know, we only run it for five minutes and you have it running all day and you're like running this thing. It's like <laughs> you're listening to Grady Descent a show where we learn about making machine learning models work in the real world. I'm your host, Lucas Bewald. Peter Wellander is a research scientist and robotics lead at OpenAI. Before that, he was an engineer at Dropbox and ran the machine learning team. And before that, he co-founded Anchovy Labs, a startup using computer vision to organize photos that was acquired by Dropbox in 2012. Well, um, I'm like most excited to talk to you about the um, the OpenAI stuff, but um, you know, I think you've had like maybe we should start with like kind of your career, which I think is pretty interesting, right? Like you've done a startup, you've um, run machine learning at, at Dropbox, and then um, gone into to OpenAI as a researcher. So like maybe you can tell us like a little bit about how you first got into to deep learning. I think it was the startup, right, where you where you first used this. Yeah, yeah. So I guess I mean I I my, I kind of did uh, machine learning in grad school, um, uh-huh. so. Or like I kind of um, you know I have this I, I did this thing where I I kind of when I didn't really know what I was doing when I went to grad school I kind of knew I wanted to learn about how kind of intelligence worked uh, or like AI and um, uh-huh. you know the place where I started was kind of in in uh, in, in kind of uh, neuroscience um, uh-huh. and I, I so I, I spent a fair amount of time just kind of doing uh, you know you know sitting in a basement and building these little micro dives you implant into rats brains. And oh, I realized really? that oh, I didn't know yeah. that. Wow. wow. <laughs> yeah. So I did that for like, um, for, for probably like half a year. And I realized just like how lonely that work was <laughs> when you just like, you know, you're spending like, I don't know, 12 hours a day because you're a grad student and you have to kind of work really hard and then building this thing. And then uh, at some point, like, you know, this whole thing takes like three months to build. And then at some point uh, you need to make a surgery and plant this into the rat. And, you know, if something happens, at that time, like you have to kind of go back to, to like you know you're all screwed. You have to re- go back to like square square one again and build your thing from scratch. I realized like if you go down this path, it would just take a really really long time to go through grad school. Um, so I realized at that point like neuroscience wasn't really for me. So then I went. Uh, I ended up just uh, I kind of wanted to focus more on robotics. But you know robotics has this similar problem where it's like you know everything takes a really long time to to do because you kind of have to first build your robot and get your robot to work. And that's like, you're probably, you know, three quarters of your PhD. Um, and then uh, and, th- and then you have to kind of do the experiments at then. So um, that, you know, instead I, I decided like, let's pick like one, one aspect of this instead, which is kind of kind of, kind of go towards um, something more useful. Um, and, you know, if it, if it lines with robotics, that's awesome. But, you know, it might, it's great if you can have kind of other applications. So I ended up uh, doing a lot of computer vision and that's uh, how I got started on my startup, which was doing kind of image organization, things like uh, you know finding faces and fi- in photos, finding what photos are about, and so on. And then, kind of, that's how I got started into kind of more machine learning and computer vision, and and um, eventually ended up at Dropbox, uh, doing doing more of that stuff there. And what were you? What like? What were the big problems at Dropbox that you worked on? So, initially, like kind of the premise that we had when we started it was really interesting, which was this thing that, you know, 
this was back in 2012 and you know half of uh the files in Dropbox were images and it was like many, many billions of images um, of photos. And, you know, it was sort of like the dark matter of Dropbox. It took up all the space, but nobody knew what was in it and it was not useful at all for users. So, you know, um, our like the kind of the mission, uh, uh, me and uh, my co-founder after we, we joined was kind of to see if we could just kind of start making sense of all that data and actually make it useful for people. So. Um, what we we kind of you know the first thing like you know there was a lot of like to kind of i know pretty mundane things that you had to kind of uh, clear up first like just being able to like i don't know sort photos by date you know stuff like that like just like extracting the metadata from the photos so it was a fair amount of time just spending on like how do we deal how do we like, index these like you know billions of photos and how do we kind of uh just do simple things on them just search by by like if you want to search by gps or search by by um, uh, timestamp or something like that. But like the idea was that uh, eventually kind of actually start extracting the useful information from, from, from images. Um, so one thing that we realized through, through that work and kind of one of, uh, one of the, the kind, of, kind of main features that I worked out while there, at least on, on photos was, um, it turns out that, you know, a lot of people are using uh, like, People used to use their, their their Dropbox a lot for kind of more kind of uh, say you know their family photos and stuff like that, uh, mm -hmm. and then over time the like the use of Dropbox shifted towards more business users. And it turns mm -hmm. out if you're a business user, you kind of take a lot of photos of documents. So like you know, like, you know photos are really really boring. They're just yeah. like photos of documents. <laughs> like no like people are kind of too lazy to put <laughs> stuff in a scanner, so they just like take a photo with their phone and they kind of hope that they will find this photo somewhere <laughs> and it's, it's uh, you know you, you know as soon as you've taken that photo like two days later like it's lost in your it's lost in your photo library like with baby photos photos of food photos of like all the random crap you take photos of you know like like yeah like, yeah you just take photos of everything right so um so we built this thing which the uh first of all like just finding those photos that 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 had documents in them um uh so you know uh just 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 bringing them up and and and, and showing them to the users uh -huh. and then just like kind of doing more useful things on that like actually kind of extracting um the text that was in the documents or oh wow so um, you would ocr the photos that must be such a magical user experience yeah to... uh, and it was like that, that was kind of a really fun thing actually because it's like actually you know i kind of I, I honestly use this feature probably, <laughs> you know, a few times a week still. Uh, I don't know, probably not so many people know about it, but it's actually still there in the app. And I'm very, very proud of that. You know, uh, uh, you can actually scan your document using Dropbox as well. Uh, just, just like take a photo in Dropbox app and scan it. So that was like the other part of it. But, you know, like even like building that OCR experience was like uh, really, really fun because this was like, you know, my my past in computer vision was like this was like pre deep learning you know mm -hmm. so this was like the old school uh computer vision stuff and it was like you know there was like hog features and <laughs> pyramid of features or like a bag of words kind of stuff you know like all these like weird things people don't know about them anymore because they don't matter anymore but yeah uh, uh, but but it was like kind of uh when i was at dropbox that's what really when kind of i guess like this whole deep learning um revolution kind of happened and it was like kind of mind-blowing to work on on computer vision problem like before and after this because it's like before it was like you know um it it, it it's it's kind of uh it, you know it's like a little bit like that xkcd comic where like you know 
you know, you want to see if you're a national park, uh, you know, you just look at the GPS. But if you want to, you know, take a photo of a bird that recognizes species, then it's, you know, you need five years and the research team or something like that. Like, it's like, that, that's kind yeah, of totally. like, any, anytime we would like brainstorm about features, it would be like, yeah, I, I don't know, like maybe in a decade <laughs> we can make that work, you know? Yeah. And, 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 and I think, um, at, like once we kind of started using deep learning for stuff, it was like, you know, I remember for OCR, like we, we, we kind of took the best OCR systems that were out there and, and we created kind of a benchmark using those, like using Google's OCR, using uh, what's like uh, Abby was one big kind of uh, OCR kind of um, text recognition company. And, you know, we sat down and we just kind of started building our own OCR engine from scratch. Uh, where we kind of extracted the text, we did the text recognition, word recognition, and so on. And like in, in three months, we had like beaten all of the public like data set benchmarks, you know. And that was just like mind blowing to me. Like I wouldn't like that. Like that's the stuff that would have taken so much longer before. Uh, wow, and that's there was, amazing. Like, two so or three people working on it. That's you know? amazing. What what year was that? Uh, that must have been like 2014 or something like that. Wow. <laughs> wow. What I mean, so, what it, like <laughs> we're using like cafe. Like what was even the the fir- how yeah you- yeah it was like, it was also up. it was also one of those times like we started on it like when cafe was still a thing and uh-huh. then by the end of it like tensorflow was a thing <laughs> you know it was like <laughs> right, you right, know, right. <laughs> like it was just so much changing from like month to month in terms of deep learning i think we even had like theano was probably the stuff we started prototyping it in the stuff like that it's <laughs> nice. like you know like the library is just changing every every month you know um but 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 yeah, the, the, I think the first kind of version, which we actually, I think the, the 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 thing that we shipped in production initially must have been some part of it was probably in Cafe, uh, probably <laughs> not anymore. But you know, there was right, uh, right. was a lot of. Fun. It must have been a challenge just to like run that on like every document. I mean, that seems like a huge production challenge. Yeah, I think you know just. The, you know, this is kind of the the truth of deploying machine learning systems <laughs> in general. Is like, you know, the actual like, you know, we did that 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 three month stint where we just kind of created the the algorithm and, and so on, got it all working, and then it was like, you know, a year to ship the feature because <laughs> of all of that stuff. You know, like actually putting it in production, making sure it's like the, you know, the errors are not disasters, but then also just scaling the thing up. You know, and doing it in a way where it's just like, you know, you you kind of you take the the, the cost of running it for like phone photo and then you multiply it by a few billion and it's like <laughs> right, very right, high right. numbers <laughs> and then you give that to some finance person and like ah, you know what's the actual value we get out of this and and you know uh, you know eventually like so you know it's so there's a lot of kind of fun like optimization work and stuff like that but uh, uh-huh. we we got it down to a place where people were happy with it and I I, I think. Wow. I don't know what the status is now, but I, I think like it's probably one of those things that you still have to actually be a paid user for Dropbox <laughs> to run this. <laughs> I don't think we run it for screen, they run it for uh, free users. <laughs> Were there some tricks to getting the size down or the cost down? Did you, I, I'm trying to remember what people oh. did back then. Did you did you yeah. do like quantization and stuff yet? Or I you know I think it was just like it was very in the very early stages of that. So I don't think we did stuff like that. Um, I think it was mostly at that point it was mostly like once you had we had kind of gotten everything working it was like a very manual process of like can we get away with a smaller network you know <laughs> you know it's like yeah, yeah. like can we have like you know five layers instead of six layers making it like it's just all, all, like finding where everything is but also like lots of like i feel like even um that was also pretty early in 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 the in the in the state of these neural network libraries so even like doing optimizations on those libraries and like 
doing little optimizations to just make them run on the particular architectures that we had on the, for the machines and stuff like that. Like those things mattered. Like all of that is kind of done automatically for you now. But you know that was the kind of stuff. I think we had at least like one or two people who worked full time on this for a few months to just <laughs> <laughs> reduce reduce the speed, uh, reduce the the, the compute uh, footprint for these things. Cool. Yeah. And and then you left to go to OpenAI and you work on the robotics team, right? Yeah, exactly. So um, I, I kind of always wanted to work on robotics since I had been in grad school, you know, but again, like I abandoned it, you know, because I thought it was a little bit too much work uh, actually working on the robots and like all of the things in, in the robotic kind of, if you build a robot, you have a whole system and all of the things were kind of broken. So, <laughs> you know, computer vision, computer vision was, was the kind of promising uh, part. Um, and, you know, the really cool thing that I had started noticing was that, um, uh, like that was kind of when a lot of these results come out where uh, deep learning were was kind of doing really well on on uh, kind of simple computer games and, and so on and uh, and, and like uh, deep reinforcement learning in particular was like the thing that that people actually started to get to work and you know I kind of started feeling at that point that computer vision like deep learning kind of solve a lot of these 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 kind of perception things that in in, in robotics and it's like it's kind of the thing where before deep learning, it kind of felt like uh, you you just didn't know how if anything was going to ever work. And after deep learning, it was like, yeah, it will probably work if we have enough data. You know, it's mm -hmm. like it, yeah. that's kind of it's a very different feeling. Feeling that you kind of know how to get there if you just get enough data. And you need to like obviously the data is, is really hard, but it's like it's it's more of a solvable engineering and like product problem to figure out how to get data. But you still have the thing with robotics is that there's this other aspect which is the control part and like control is also really really hard and um what was really promising that that, that those kind of that uh, that early deep reinforcement learning work was that suddenly there was kind of an uh a learning-based approach to control that seemed to kind of scale to kind of more interesting action space and what i mean by that is just like you can just like manipulate uh, all the joints on a robot for example um and so so i knew some of the people who were working on that at at OpenAI, and um, they were just starting up a robotics team, so it seemed like a really good time to kind of just get into deep reinforcement learning and see if we can actually get robots to do much more interesting things using deep learning. So, so how how is it like evolved? Like, do you still feel like deep reinforcement learning is as promising as it felt uh, in like 2017 or whenever you you joined the robotics team? Yeah, I think at that point I felt like there is a chance. Kind of that this could work and now i feel like you know this is this is totally the bad you know this, is like, this, this, <laughs> oh, awesome. this should work there, there might there might be other ways to get there but like it feels like this should work you know in the limit this will work how, uh -huh. how like how how long it would take to get there like it's really really hard to say like i feel like you know it's always like one or two years away and it would probably be one or two years away for more than one or two years um so uh but 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 i, I kind of feel like there's something fundamental with machine with the uh, deep learning and uh, with deep reinforcement learning where it really feels like this this could be uh you know this should be able to solve the problem relatively far you know there's like uh inter and by the problem i mean kind of getting to more general purpose robots like robots that can do kind of more of the things that, that humans do actually kind of move around in a home like not be locked into a kind of a factory but uh, you know, actually deal with all the complexities of the real world. I kind of feel, I, I kind of very strongly feel like there's something um, that 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 like 
the way you need to tackle this just because of the complexity of the world is really through learning and mm -hmm. deep reinforcement learning is just such a simple paradigm where it seems like if everything like uh, like most other things are going to be like much more complex and like i guess my bias is just like complex things that kind of never really work and it's like the simple things that really really work uh, that's kind of you know what I, what I saw at Dropbox. Like it was always the simplest approach that worked. If you, if you try to be a little bit clever with like the algorithms and something, like usually you know uh, usually you, kind of, you 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 would end up being disappointed. And like the most important thing was really setting up the data. Um, and and I think that's like something very fundamental with deep reinforcement learning uh, that kind of makes me think that it, you can push it really far. And we 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 kind of just getting started. Uh, what do you say when you say like work or push it really far? Like, what are some of the things that, like, what are some of the things that you see so far that that makes you think that it works? And then, what are some of the things that you would like would make you feel like, wow, this is really successful? Yeah, that's a good question. I I think so. First of all, like, like uh, I don't know if all, all the listeners would know what kind of uh, deep reinforcement learning is. Like. Uh, you can just describe that a little bit more. So deeper, sure. like reinforcement learning is kind of really about learning from trial and error. A lot of like machine learning is based on supervised learning where you kind of show examples uh, and then you have a label. Um, but reinforcement learning is, is again like trial and error and at the, like you, you do a series of action and you get basically some kind of score at that. Like you're, and we call this the re reward. Like, so you, like you do something and it gets rewarded or kind of punished at the end. Um, but usually people talk about roar, you know, we're all kind of more optimists. Um, <laughs> uh, and, but, but, you know, this is, this is, this is like the core, core algorithm. So it's like very, very simple. Um, and, you know, the things that, the reason I kind of feel like it's the, um, uh, it, it, it is kind of promising is that um, the biggest issue around, like the biggest criticism that, that reinforcement learning gets is, uh, is that you just need lots and lots of experience like you just need to do lots like so many of these trial and errors in order to learn anything right so it's like uh, and and so people usually don't like reinforcement learning for robots because you cannot do that in the, the, the in in our on a real robot because like first of all like if you do anything on a real robot and you don't do it very controlled like you're going to break the robot you're going to break the things around the robot it's kind of mm -hmm. dangerous to do it um and what do you um why i think it's i think some of that mis that criticism is misplaced is because we can just do a lot of that learning in simulation um and some of like some of the things that we showed at OpenAI over the kind of past two years has been that uh like we have really focused on this problem of like um seeing if we can solve robotics problems in simulation and taking those uh agents that we have trained in the simulator and putting them into a real-world robot and seeing if we can kind of do the same thing on a re that we trained it on in the simulator on the real-world robot. And um, the, like the, the kind of um, the hypothesis behind this is that, you know, uh, like a, a kind of a, a one somewhat controversial hypothesis is that, you know, if you have any problem in a simulator, you can solve it using reinforcement learning if you just have enough compute. Mm -hmm. um, and, and um, you know, you can have really complex problems like uh, yeah, like uh, like Go and uh, or or like uh, Dota, uh, uh, which is a computer game. Like these things that requires a lot of strategy and so on. And you can take those uh, and 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 you can still solve them with enough compute. So what we did at OpenAI, we 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 kind of trained and um, 
an agent in the simulator to uh, operate a humanoid robotic hand. And we got this to solve uh, the Rubik's Cube in a simulator. And mm -hmm. then by setting up kind of the environment in the right way in the simulator and throwing lots and lots of compute at it, we mm -hmm. were able to train a robust enough algorithm to then put it on a real world robot and have it solve a real world, world uh, Rubik's Cube. And um, this is, I, I kind of feel like this kind of, this was a hard enough problem where like a manipulation problem that's like this is like kind of tricky for humans even to to do it like one like we had like one hand and it was kind of fixed to a wall you kind of move mm -hmm. it very much uh and you know it can still do this this thing and so it's a hard manipulation problem still we can solve it using reinforcement learning we solve it on a real world robot so in some way that kind of gave me enough confidence where i now feel like you know, there must be more problems that we can tackle using this approach. Like a lot of things will be easier than solving Robis Group. Hi, we'd love to take a moment to tell you guys about Weights and Biases. Weights and Biases is a tool that helps you track and visualize every detail of your machine learning models. We help you debug your machine learning models in real time, collaborate easily and advance the state of the art in machine learning. You can integrate weights and biases into your models with just a few lines of code. With hyperparameter sweeps, you can find the best set of hyperparameters for your models automatically. You can also track and compare how many GPU resources your models are using. With one line of code, you can visualize model predictions in form of images, videos, audio, plotly charts, molecular data, segmentation maps, and 3D point clouds. You can save everything you need to reproduce your models days, weeks, or even months after training. Finally, with reports, you can make your models come alive. Reports are like blog posts in which your readers can interact with your model metrics and predictions. Reports serve as a centralized repository of metrics, predictions, hyperparameter stride, and accompanying notes. All of this together gives you a bird's eye view of your machine learning workflow. You can use reports to share your model insights, keep your team on the same page, and collaborate effectively remotely. I'll leave a link in the show notes below to help you get started. And now, let's get back to the episode. That's my when you, when, when the So like when the robotics team got started, what was its like? charter like like did you know that you were going to do simulation did you know that you're going to do reinforcement learning uh i think i would say like the short answer is kind of we didn't know at all what we were doing you know like it's kind of we had this like goal you know it's like we we, we kind of wanted to build a general purpose robot uh -huh. and um and but we we kind of we i don't think we had a super clear idea of how to get there um it was more like but we i think one core Believe we had was that, uh, you know, deep learning would be a big part of it. Uh, reinforcement learning would also probably be a big, big part of it. Um, like exactly what kind of the like different flavors of reinforcement learning is on, like that we didn't really know yet. Mm -hmm. um, so it was all about like there was kind of a philosophy around: can we take some of these approaches that are pretty simple, and by really pushing them super, super, super far. Um, can we can we solve really really hard problems with them? Mm. So uh, I, and, and I think that's kind of the that was our overall strategy. So we kind of hoped that just taking pretty simple reinforcement learning algorithms and and but putting them on a really really hard problem would 
would be successful. But, you know, I think we were like somewhat scared for the first two years about like, maybe this won't work out. You know, it's like, <laughs> it's like, it's, it, it really felt like that a lot of times. It's just like, every time this robotic hand broke and we had to set it off to, for repairs <laughs> and, you know, we, we, we would have like a month sitting there and thinking about our mistakes and thinking like, will this ever work? I'm, I'm not sure this is probably completely the wrong path. Um, but in the end, uh, now I think we're believing that is kind of stronger than ever. Hmm. Why did you choose to manipulate a hand? Like, I feel like if I was trying to build a general purpose robot, I might even like leave out the hands, you know, it seems like the hand is like the gotta be the most complicated thing. And like, you know, I feel like in the movies, like robots don't even always have um, hands. Like maybe, maybe they don't even need them. I don't know. Yeah. You know, it's kind of interesting how that's, that started because like the first kind of problems we uh, tackled were we didn't use a robotic hand. We had like a, one of these fetch robots, which is basically a kind of mobile robot with a robotic um, arm and uh, like a two finger gripper. Like it's super simple of a robot. And we would even like just like, you know, screw it onto the floor so it couldn't move. So it was just like a robot arm, basically. A very uh -huh. expensive robot arm. Um, <laughs> and, and, and so, uh, you know, that's how we started. But what we realized when we were doing that, we, we, we started with the simplest of problems in robotics, which is block stacking. Like people have been stacking blocks for 60 years. I kid you not. There's like stuff like for movies from Stanford in the 1950s or 60s where they have robots stacking blocks. Uh, so, you know, you know, you kind of, kind of start simple. So, so we were, that was one of the first things we started doing. And I think like, you know, we had this realization that it's just like, even the simplest thing of just picking up the blocks and like the manipulation of those blocks was pretty hard. So then we were like, okay, so we need to kind of solve this problem of just like um, um, uh, doing manipulation. Uh, and then we were like, okay, but like we, we need to be pretty ambitious about this. Let's let let's do the hardest thing we can think about, and, <laughs> <I see. laughs> uh, and let's let's have a, like a, a robotic hand. And um, there was like another thing that we did at the same time, which was basically good. we went to a robotics conference. We asked people like, what is the hardest thing that you know, in, like this was a bunch of roboticists from across the world. Um, and we asked them like, what is the hardest thing you can imagine doing in robotics right now? What is it like if we want to pick a really hard problem and where we could like, if we can show the deep reinforcement learning work in this, like wh where would you be impressed? Mm -hmm. And they, you know, all of them would answer like, well, the problem I'm working on is really, really hard. Uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, that's, you know, right. if, if you push them enough, like two kind of things uh, became clear. One was like, high degrees of freedom like having lots of like joints in your robot like um that that's kind of hard uh because a lot of like uh, control theoretic approaches kind of are just they they don't scale very well with the number of of of, of joints on your robot so you know a hand is like if you have a robotic arm it's like five robotic arms on your hand you know it's like pretty <laughs> complex because right. it doesn't really get more complex than that um and the other thing people said is like you know, doing things with contacts is really hard, like where you where you actually like manipulating objects. Um, mm. So that's kind of so that's why we, we, we kind of felt like, well, if we really want to convince people that uh, that that deep reinforcement learning can solve really complex robotics problems, let's let's just pick a really, really hard problem. And so um, if we and if we solve that, we feel like a problem where we solve solve the manipulation pr um, problem for that kind of particular robot like we won't be afraid of manipulation problems anymore in some sense, you know? <laughs> uh, so, you know, Ruby's Cube was kind of a pretty, like so once you have the robotic arm, uh, robotic hand, sorry, then it's like, what can you do with a robotic hand? Like if it's just stuck to the wall, well, you need to kind of put something in the hand. 
and you know a ball or something is that it's very exciting so what's the most complex object you can think of like a Rubik's cube is pretty complex so that's kind of how we got started on the Rubik's cube uh in the robotic hand and you know in hindsight it's I don't know how smart I was but it's it, you know it it gave us a really tricky problem to work on interesting you, you would have done something else in hindsight I I mean I think you know when we started out with this project it was kind of pretty crazy so we did this thing where we started solving it in a simulator and we thought like okay this is going to maybe take half a year to solve in the simulator uh like you know it's gonna be tricky to come up with the right reinforcement learning algorithms we probably have to iterate on the kind of algorithms and stuff like that and then we started on it and then like you know within like two or three weeks we had solved in the simulator so we were like holy shit, that was that was simple you know uh you know so we can probably solve it on the physical hand in like another month or so you know <laughs> and that was like the famous last word so that it took like two years from that point um so you know i i definitely feel like um there were certain things we just we didn't know about these robotic hands like just the fact that um nobody had run reinforcement learning arguments on these robotic hands before like it's um and if you like these when you train a reinforcement learning argument from scratch you know it just uh and also if you run it in a simulator training the simulator and deploy it on a real hand it just it has no respect for like the the delicacy of the hardware if, if <laughs> you know it's, it's like it would just like push all the, the the motors in the maximum speed in the different directions and you know you know we we would bring in this um this the manufacturer of this shadow hand and show them what we were doing and they would they would just watch in horror like like <laughs> you know we only run it for five minutes and you have it running all day and you're like <laughs> running this thing it's like like you know because like you know within an hour like one of the fingers would like the thumb or the little finger would be loose or like hanging off the thread you know? <laughs> it was just like we completely destroy these 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 robotic hands and so i think there was like um uh the iteration time on these this this hand is just was just really really long yeah I, I definitely feel like it's one of those things like if we if we had picked a simpler problem, we might have kind of completed it faster just because um, the physical aspect of just waiting for like repairing hands and figuring out the dynamics of these really complex hands. And like, like you know, uh, it's definitely easier to tackle a problem if you start from a simpler problem and make it more advanced than if you pick a really advanced problem and just kind of go at it because then you don't know whether it's like where the issues are. And I think this is a little bit was like, it took us a long time to kind of narrow down um, and like shrink the complexity to then be able to expand the complexity again as we were solving this task. So I think this is the, the main thing. If it was like a very, uh, if you could buy like, uh, you know, super robust, like industrial grade robot hands, uh, you know, then it might have been different, but there was like, you know, basically like two companies in the world that make these very robot hands because nobody knows how to use them. I'm surprised there's even two. It's a, I've, I've never seen a robot hand except except your robot <laughs> right <laughs> you know oh my god you know they, they sell it to these research institutes and you know apparently they, they tell us that they go to these research institutes and they sell it and then like two years later they visit them and the hand is like in pristine condition nobody dares to touch these, these robots <laughs> because they're so complicated <laughs> so anyway yeah so tell me about um tell me about the team like like how big is the team working on this and like how do you like divide up roles like how do you like how do you even like set goals with like this like how do you how do you break apart 
such a difficult goal that might actually be impossible into smaller pieces and I mean, what does yeah. even like a performance review look like? Do, <laughs> do you actually do that? Yeah, no, those those are good questions. I, I think, you know, I, we've kind of learned a lot about this because it's kind of it's very different from a lot of other situations where like, you know, when I was at Dropbox, it's all about like you want to ship a product and you do everything to kind of ship the product. And here, uh, you know, at OpenAI, we are we have kind of a, a kind of a pretty ambitious goal of building kind of just more general AI algorithms um, and, and eventually kind of uh, general intelligence. And, and so we kind of want to set really ambitious goals for ourselves where we can really feel like we can um, uh, kind of push, push the, the envelope on, on where, where, what, what we can do with AI. And that's kind of, that, that makes it really tricky to, to kind, of, uh, kind of make that into something concrete, especially if you have lots of people working on it. Because the other thing that, that we kind of pretty strongly believe, uh, especially in the robotics team, is this idea of having just more of a, a team effort to achieve big things. Like it's just, there's just too many things with robotics, like things that you kind of need to solve, where you can just have like one or two people working on it. You kind of need a bigger team. And, and right now we're like, we, we, we kind of found that the sweet spot has been around somewhere between like 10 and 20 people in terms of the size of the team. Like if you get bigger than that, like overhead starts uh, slowing you down quite a bit. Uh, but if you're like smaller than like 10 people, it's, it's relatively hard to make progress just because there's there's just like a little bit too many things to do so what we try to do is like we we try to have pretty concrete goals and we uh so like for example we knew that we were working towards solving ruby's cube for like two years um so this this was a very concrete goal like you know once we kind of knew once we can see this robot physical robot hand solving a real ruby's cube then we saw this 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 problem and um and that makes it having a very kind of concrete goal like that makes it easier to kind of focus and not digress too much because like if you're doing research it's like you know it's like um, walking through a forest and you have like you want to get to kind of a, the, the mountain and there's all these like nice fruits and and uh, berries <laughs> around and it's like you just want to say, oh this looks really good i want to <laughs> taste this for a while and see what i can cook with it you know it's like it's very tempting at every point in time to just stop and like explore for a really, really long time. Um, but like, if you want to solve a really, really big problem, you kind of have to be much more focused on that. And and seeing this kind of this this thing in the horizon, this kind of clear, clear, clear goal, it it helps a lot. Um, so 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 we that's like I think that has been the kind of one one core component of just how we how we do things. Is this like clear goals and then having the whole team work towards that in, a, in more 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 in the kind of philosophy of a startup but like less but less um maybe short time priorities like it's fine to like we, we kind of have to try out really ambitious things and things that will fail with very high likelihood uh it's like kind of we want to leapfrog a lot of other approaches with the, I, the, the approaches we take i guess like my question is like i'm imagining I mean, that makes total sense but like what is everyone doing like like is it, or yeah, what is everyone doing? <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, it's a good question. So what is everybody doing? Uh, you know, it's, uh, I feel like, you know, if you ask anybody at any point in time, what are they doing? They're gonna uh -huh. tell you, well, I have this bug. 
I'm trying to figure out this bike. You know, it's like any engineer's life, right? It's like, this is what you're doing almost all of the time. It's solving, like fixing your bug. Um, right. Uh, but it's like, it's different levels of bugs. Um, and and so uh, usually kind of the work is, is split between doing some kind of engineering towards, um, you know, building up tooling to understand more of where we're going in terms of our experiments and uh, running our experiments and so on. Or like tr like engineering in terms of like running our training, um, like training our models and stuff like that, or a lot of like just um, research on uh, where we. Wh wh what I mean by research is kind of more, um, you know, figuring coming up with new algorithms, trying them out, coming up with hypotheses, trying them out, uh, figuring out the best way to sort of set up experiments. Uh, you know, sometimes that involves kind of like doing something that we have come up by ourselves based on like where we are in, in our research. Sometimes that's a new paper that's uh, come out and we say, oh, that, that might be promising. Let's re-implement that and see how that compares toward, as a, towards our baseline. You know, I, it's, there's just a lot of, lot of different things going on, which is really interesting because it's like, I think one thing that's very different from say working at a, at a company where often like you're working on a feature and you're working on that feature for like oftentimes like you know, at least a quarter, often many quarters, often like a year, you're working on the same thing. Here, like things mm -hmm. switch very, very quickly. It's like you work on one thing for a week, then you work for another thing for maybe three weeks, and then another thing for a week. And you might be, each project is very different. It might be like, let's make this thing faster. Let's dig really deep into like CUDA optimization for like training faster. And then another day is like, uh, how do I do, how do I control this new robot that we got, you know, or then another, another day is like, how do I render things really quickly in, in, uh, in, in OpenGL or like some unity or something like that. Like, you know, it's just highly varied work. Um, and, and Man, like, that sounds so fun. I, I like, I want to, <laughs> I want to work with you. <laughs> you know, it it I, I can tell you it's pretty fun. <laughs> <laughs> I, it's uh, it's definitely one of those things. Like whenever you get bored, there's another project around the uh, around the corner that you can jump onto. So it's uh, you learn a lot. It's, it's really, nice. really fun. <laughs> um, can I ask you? I, I actually um, I I don't know if you have thoughts on this, but I was wondering. Just one really practical thing I was wondering is like I think when I talked to you maybe um, a year or two ago, you were you were like completely like hey like TensorFlow is like you know, the best language, it's clear that that's like the thing to use. And then you guys like switched to PyTorch. And I was wondering like, like wh why, like what, what happened and how you even like, it seems like switching a framework sort of mid project sounds like unbelievably daunting. Um, yeah. Like, like what, what yeah. prompted it? Like, like how did that come about? Yeah. So, you know, I think most th most of these things happen pretty kind of bottoms up at OpenAI kind of, it's like, you know, people, people, you know, everybody has kind of their main product and like this one or more side products. It's like just a natural <laughs> thing, right? And, and then your right. three side products, you always, always want to kind of try something, some new tools so you can learn a little bit more. So people started playing around with like uh, PyTorch for their side projects. And, you know, they, you know, you kind of pretty quickly realize that your code is like much, much shorter <laughs> and much, much more <laughs> pleasant to read and uh much faster to iterate on like you suddenly you, you know you can just uh get all the data out in the middle of your your your, your comp computing your you know your uh your 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 network without like you know running it through your graph and extracting it from a graph like it's just as you do in tensorflow it's a kind of 
it was just like a much more pleasant tool to use for people like for their own projects and then it's like when it, so th so then what happens is that like, you have this for your side project then when you start your next project and like some some i think some teams at open ar are more like they are kind of smaller and they have a kind of uh more of uh, uh like the you know the, the, they try they have a product that runs like uh, a month or two and then they try a different product and like and then like when you switch product that's a kind of uh, a pretty easy point at which you can kind of switch to a new tool so that's kind mm -hmm. of what started happening you know and then like you know teams some teams started building those those tools upon then pytorch and then you know you the other teams are like, oh, that tool looks really nice, but oh, it's in PyTorch. <laughs> you know, and then suddenly this like FOMO starts like growing, growing within the teams and, and eventually it's like too much. And and I think we kind of just realized that, um, uh, you know, there's people, people just have adopted this tool and we should just kind of go with the flow and everybody should adopt it. And uh, I think like the other thing was just like, we started building more and more really good tooling and we wanted the whole company to kind of use that tooling because mm. uh, it just made everybody move faster. And like, luckily for robotics, for example, like I think robotics was probably one of the biggest teams in terms of just uh, uh, that, that had to face this switch. And we were pretty lucky in that when we were like, we we, we kind of, uh, we launched this, we, we kind of released our results with Ruby's Cube. And then we had some time where we could like take a step back and like, you know, do a little bit of a refactoring of our tooling and and change uh, a framework. I wouldn't have wanted to do this in the middle of a product, as you said. Like that seems just uh, you know a recipe for disaster. Um, you know, you know this this thing. Like whenever somebody re-implements a re reinforcement learning algorithm, even if it's the same person that re-implemented last time, <laughs> it's still going to take them a month to get it right because totally. it's just like yeah. so many subtleties. <laughs> what um I, 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 so what other like. Uh, internal tools are you really proud of? Like what what stuff have you built? And do you have plans to open source any of it or make it available to other people? Or is it just for open AI? Yeah, so I think there are a few things that we have released that I, I think we are pretty, like we feel like have been really useful uh, for mm -hmm. ourselves. And I feel like a lot of people have adopted them. So that's like some recognition that it's been useful for other people. Like I think the biggest Clearly. thing is kind of a, like uh, open AI gym has been there oh, like, yeah, since yeah. the beginning. Of, of OpenAI, more or less, you know, it's like it was just one of those things where it was like that was really when um, uh, when OpenAI got found. It was around the time where where kind of uh, reinforcement learning started to work again with deep reinforcement learning, and people would just reimplement all these very basic environments in which you would benchmark your your algorithms, and mm -hmm. uh, OpenAI kind of built this library called OpenAI Gym where you which has all those environments that people are benchmarking on already implemented so people could just use that and then it has a really kind of simple uh, abstraction layer and very like a very simple interface so people would just build more and more environments on top of that 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 API and um, so that became really popular I think that's a really good one I think uh, there are a few others like we try to whenever we come up with new uh, kind of algorithms that we find that we use, ourselves a lot then we 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 release them so for example we have this baselines library which has a lot of implementations of of uh reinforcement learning algorithms and like getting those implementations right is really really hard um and and so like releasing that it's good because that is like saves people a lot of work um so we've done that i think and robotics team in particular you know we we kind of want to as soon as we can like Kind of separate out some core components of our workflow. We try to do that. Like we did this with a uh, something called Mujoku Pi, 
which is uh, a Python wrapper for a physics simulator called Mujoko, which we use in all our work. And so we just released that. Um, uh, we released it quite a long time ago, but we, we, you know, we just once we had it kind of once it was stable enough, we released it. Similarly, our rendering pipeline we call it Orb. Um, we have also released that. So usually, you know, we try to open source things. Now the tricky thing is that we cannot open source all the things we're do, working on, not because we don't want to, but because it's just would add a lot of overhead because like yeah. oftentimes like code in our, in our, in our, uh, repositories, it, it's not very long lived. Like most of it, like I would say like 90% is not used after like half a year to a year, because it's just like, there are all these hypotheses that we're trying out and most of them fail, you know? So it's like, you, you're left with a bunch of code that you basically have to delete because it, it doesn't matter. Uh, and you know, we don't want to release stuff just to release it if it's not, if we don't really believe in it. Um, so, so it's like, it, it's really the stuff that survives that we want to release. And, uh, that's kind of the philosophy we have around it. And, and, but when we do have those components, uh, you know, we just try to release it. Interesting. I, I also want to ask you, I mean, this is a, a kind of a loaded question coming from me, I realize, but I feel really proud that you guys use um, our product, uh, Weights and Biases or, or WandDB. Um, I'm curious if you could say a little bit about just like how, how you use it. And I'm not trying to turn this into like a infomercial, but <laughs> I'm genuinely curious kind of what your workflow is like around it. Cause I see you using like reporting more and more and, and um, yeah, I'm curious how you yeah. think about it. Yeah, no, no. I mean, um, we have been using it for a while now and it's it's really kind of uh it's also one of those things it's like we started using a robotics team because you know at some point um like as the robotics team grew we were just kind of sharing a lot of results with each uh like we were basically everybody were like running their own kind of you know tensor board graphs on their computers and like pieces and graphs uh in you know slack and sharing with each other <laughs> it's really tricky uh to kind of keep track of all that stuff so then uh we ended up using it a lot um, for, for just tracking our experiments. And I think that kind of brought us a certain level of sanity in all like the chaos that was all of the research that we were doing as, as the team grew. I guess the, the, the latest feature that we have now started using quite a lot are these reports. And this is kind of, I feel like a pretty pro user feature in some way. It's like, you know, <laughs> it's not only, you know, it's not just plotting the graphs, but it's like putting them together in a nice report. And, you know, it's kind of one of those funny things where it's like, where it's adding a certain level of process and bureaucracy to have people create these reports, but we found it to be super useful because when you're a small team, where you're like two or three people and you're talking all the time about your progress and so like everybody has this like mental state of what is happening. While, but once you get kind of bigger than maybe five or six people, then um, giving each other feedback and understanding what other people are working on and so on, it can be really hard. And it's like this kind of N square problem where like, um, you, you kind of need to talk to everybody and like pairwise little chefs going on. And so kind of figuring a way out a way to kind of fan out the information from one person to all the others in an efficient way. It's really, really important. So, um, the way we use these, these reports is like, we, we're actually pretty strict about it now. Like we have, you know, we, whenever you run, if you're running anything an experiment or like you have some kind of research hypothesis that you're going after and you think it's going to take more than a day or two, we like very strongly uh, push everybody towards uh, writing a report. And what goes into the report is like, you know, like you kind of have to like, what, what are you doing? Like, what is the experiment that you're going to be running <laughs> over the next few days? Like, what are you like, you know, because you're probably going to spend thousands of dollars in GPU time and like, you know, lots of 
just your own time on it. So you kind of, it's good to spend at least a few minutes justifying for yourself and others, like, what are you going to do? Um, and, you know, it's not like we're like, it's more like, we, we, I think we never say like, no, you shouldn't do this. It's more like, you know, we can say like, well, I don't know if I believe in that, but you know, okay, that's, uh, that, that's, fi that's fine. But at least now I understand it. If you can write down like, what is it you're going to do? And we try right. to make, make it actually pretty clear, like, you know, from a just like scientific way standpoint in terms of like, here are my hypotheses and here's my plan for like proving or disproving these hypotheses. And then, you know, the, the report is usually a number of like graphs and stuff that we have from our training runs and so on, or like example photos that we've generated as part of our evaluation scripts and so on in these reports. And we just found it super, super useful because it's it's kind of it, it is a place it's like it's a little bit of like rubber ducking you know you you you're you're talking to yourself as you're doing this it really forces you to clarify your own thoughts and it's what like it it, it gives a way of like um, having other people learn both from the kind of positive outcomes as well as the negative outcomes in terms of the experiments you run and I think like another thing it does is it it also kind of forces a kind of a reduction in stigma around things not working out. Because like ultimately, again, like in order to do the stuff we're doing, like most of the things are not going to work out. But if you kind of sweep those things under the rug every time it doesn't work out, then it kind of looks like somebody is only doing amazing work and things are just working all the time, and you don't hear about all those like ninety percent of the times it didn't work. And that's usually how it works in the, out in like papers and so on. Like you see all these papers from people coming out, and it's like everything is working, but you don't know about all those things they tried that didn't work out, and you know. What we do internally then is like uh, you can look at those things that didn't work out. You see, like okay, other people are actually doing these experiments. They had they really believed that it would work, but it didn't end up working. And so you don't feel as afraid yourself to kind of uh, pursue experiments because it's yeah, as long as you have a good reason for why it would work, it's okay if it didn't work out. You know. Well, it makes me so proud to hear that. I'm, I'm so glad that it's useful for you. Um, yeah, it's awesome. We always so we always end with two questions. I'm I'm, I'm wondering how you'll answer these. Um, so the first one is, um, what's a what's a topic in um, machine learning that you feel like people don't talk about as much as they should, like an underrated topic? I don't know if it's a thing that people don't talk about, but it's like it's definitely a thing which I, um, which we don't understand well enough. Uh, which is you know, understanding when our arguments are uncertain about what they're doing. Um, mm. You know, like this, it's just like one of those things where for humans, it's very natural kind of like when you're, um, when you don't know what's going on, you kind of slow down and you are more, you kind of more perceptive, you think more and so on. And the algorithms that we have today are very much like they just like, they, they make split decisions all the time. You know, they, they don't, they don't think very much at all they just like they just like open their eyes and like see something and they just react and that's that's it you know it's like when we're walking into a dark room it's not like we run around and play our arms it's like you know we feel our way around it you know we take it easy and you know our arguments don't do that at all and and so like giving them a sense of uh either self-confidence you know um you know uh it's sort of like my 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 PhD advisor would like sometimes uh, a bit meanly comment on people being like uh, high confidence, low 
competence. And you know, it's like a lot of that's very much how our <laughs> that's very much how our uh, algorithms are. I feel like a lot of time it's like it should be a little bit lower confidence a lot of time and not 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 try try to be as you know as <laughs> as much uh, to do these with decisions. I love it. All right, and here's my last question. Um, so when you look at the projects you've been involved in, from like sort of like conception to to deployment. Um, What's like generally been sort of the biggest bottleneck or the thing that makes you like the most worried if you're doing another project where you need to, to get it deployed? Um, it sounds like hardware was the, yeah. was the biggest issue. In the... For robotics, totally, you know, it's like, <laughs> you know, it's definitely one of these things. Like if you can, if you can get hardware and it's really useful, then it's, uh, that it's very reliable. You should just like pay all the money you can. Like I remember like when we started OpenAI, we were like, we can get by by these like hundred dollar, like uh, webcams and stuff for robots. Now it's like, how much is this camera? Is it's $10,000. It's probably worth it. Let's just pay ten thousand dollars for this camera, <laughs> because you know that it would save me like half a year of my my misery. Uh, so you know that that's definitely a, a big thing. I think. I mean, I think like generally, I think one thing that always gets me a little bit worried. I think is when when you don't start with the simplest things. You know, it's kind of. Um, I really think this is like one of the core things. Like you kind of for every product you start out with. You should kind of start with a very like a strong but simple baseline. Uh, it's just like if people don't start in that direction, it's like uh, for all. If you try out more complex methods, they're just going to be this, they're often going to be like you know in terms of the parameters, kind of exponentially harder to get to work basically. Um, and 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 so uh, it's and then you can do all this work and you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna find that you you make it work in the end. But then if you're like if you try out the simpler approach and that works, you're just going to feel really embarrassed, you know? And it's like, and that used to just teach you that you should always start with the simplest thing. And then like, like then you can try these more complicated things, but if you cannot beat this simple thing after a while, you know, your warmth for this simple thing, you know, increases and you're like, actually, maybe I should just use the simple thing. And you kind of learn to appreciate the simple things. So I think this is like one of the core, core things I always kind of look for is like, are we trying the simplest thing possible? Because it's like, that's probably the thing that's going to work in that. <laughs> wow, what a great uh, note to end on. Thank you so much, Peter. <laughs> Thank you so much. It was great uh, uh, being on your show. Thank you so much.